Alright, this is going to be the last week uh, in the life of Joseph, for now. I imagine at some point we'll come back to it. Uh, next week we're going to get into the Gospel of John. But I think you'll find this is a, a good transition sermon. But I'll start with a question. If you were going to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, based on how good you are, where would you rate yourself? How good are you? Renee, you didn't have to yell that out. <laughs> one to a ten. Now, if I was going to rate you guys, I, <laughs> those of you who I, who I know, I would, I would rate you all very high. Honestly, I would. But I have to do that by comparing you from person to person. You see, the Bible is not about comparing ourselves from person to person. It's about comparing ourselves from person to God. And I think Renee got pretty close with a one. By the God to person comparison, I might have to go off the chart into negative numbers. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about true forgiveness as we look at the um, culminating event in the life of Joseph. Today we're going to, to look at when Joseph forgave his brothers, but we're going to do it not from the perspective of Joseph being the focus, but from the perspective of the brothers being the focus. And we're going to take a look and see how much, in fact, we might have in common with Joseph's brothers, more so than even Joseph in this situation. So the first, uh, the first point, it says bad and blind. And we're going to figure out what that means as we look at the text for today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 44. Uh, actually, the, the section is Genesis 44, verse 14, all the way through 45, 8. And I'll start here at verse 14. It says, well, actually, let me make it make a little more sense. Remember la last week, what did we talk about? Anybody? Come on now. Come on, somebody bail me out here. Thank you. Optimist, pessimist, or realist. And we looked at uh, Jacob. Joseph's dad and how negative, how pessimistic he was <clears throat> looking at things. So the brothers ended up going and they ended up going to get some food and they came back. Um, I'm sorry, they came back. They had the money in their bags. They went back again. This time they had to bring Benjamin. Remember, Simeon got put in the prison. They had to bring Benjamin with them. And they go and they come before Joseph. They get more food. They get the money in their sacks. And then there's this cup, this silver cup that gets put in Benjamin's sack. And Joseph sends his guys after his brothers, and they say, surely we wouldn't steal anything from you. And they say, if anyone has this cup, they'll be your servant forever, your slave forever. So they go through, and sure enough, in Benjamin's sack, the youngest, Joseph's brother by the same mother, they find the cup, and they come back. And Benjamin is going to have to be a slave forever, and Jacob is going to die because of the sadness he's going to have. And one of Joseph's brothers named Judah says... And we'll start in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Oh, how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we, and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. 
Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother doesn't go with us, then we will go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down his gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's brothers were bad dudes, no? Look at what they did. If you go back to, uh, to the beginning of this, this trip through the life of Joseph, in chapter 37, we see that the brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all of other brothers, and they hated him and could not speak to him peacefully. Joseph didn't have little fun times with his brothers growing up. They despised him. Joseph had these dreams, so his brothers... Hated him even more. Joseph got a robe from his father, so they hated him still more. And one day they were out tending the sheep far away, and Joseph came to check on them, and they decided that they would kill him. Remember that? But they didn't kill him. I guess they weren't so bad. They were real gracious and decided they would simply sell him into slavery. And then after that, they made up a big lie that that he was killed. And they brought his torn and bloodied robe, uh, which was torn and bloodied as a cover-up, back to the father. And the father said, oh my gosh, a wild animal has killed him. And they didn't say anything. So they covered it up with a lie. Two wicked people, no? Could you imagine what, what type of person would do something like that? How low would someone have to get to do something like that? Well, here's a little problem. In our society, we see a large difference between thoughts and actions. Jesus 
didn't see such a large distinction between thoughts and actions. Remember a year or so ago, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 5, I think it's verse 22, Jesus is talking about murder, and he said, you, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, anyone who hates a brother has committed murder, is a paraphrase of it. He's saying that these guys are pretty horrible. They, they tried to plan to kill their brother, they simply sold him into slavery, and we say, oh my gosh, could you imagine? Because we keep a good veneer and we have the ability to prevent ourselves from acting. But have you ever hated anybody? Ever in your life, maybe just once, have you ever hated anyone? Let's make it really nasty. Have you ever hated God? Now we'll dig into that a little more deeply, but I'll make it real simple for you. If you ever didn't love Jesus, you hated God. There's no indifference towards Jesus. The Bible's very clear about that. If you've ever intentionally chosen to sin, guess what you're telling God? Now, there is not a perfect similarity between thought and action. The Bible is not saying that if you hate someone, you are committing the same sin as someone who murders someone. But it is saying it's a sin nonetheless. And there's not a varying degree of sin where God says, if you get 10 demerits in the sin field, then we have a problem. Anything under 10 demerits of sin is okay. No, God demands perfection because God is a holy God. He's also a just and perfect God. He must deal with all sin. The point I'm making, folks, is this. Joseph's brothers were wickedly bad dudes. Guess what we are? Isn't that great encouragement? Good morning. You're all ones on a scale of 1 to 10. You're wickedly bad people. It ends on a positive note. You just have to stick with me. When we miss the fact that we're ones on a scale of 1 to 10, we have a little bit of a problem. If we relate from person to person, we're all in the 8, 9, 10 range. Probably I could say the 9, 10 range now. Anybody here? Anyone here ever murdered somebody? If you have, we'll talk after church. Probably not. Anyone here ever hated somebody? From a person's perspective, we're pretty good. From God's perspective, oof. Joseph's brothers were bad guys, and we can read this story and we can think, oh my gosh, look at the how the heck could you do something like that? And guess what we need to do? Look back at ourselves and realize there's some similarity to us in Joseph's brothers. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Guess what that means? Joseph's brothers and us too. Let me show you something interesting here. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Do you know anyone else in the Bible who was hated by their brothers? Perhaps the brothers by the same Heavenly Father? Jesus was hated by his brothers too, wasn't he? His earthly brothers thought he was crazy at first. But his brothers, uh, by the Heavenly Father, hated him. Joseph infuriated people by what he said, didn't he? Did Jesus do that too? Joseph was thrown into an empty pit. Jesus was thrown into an empty tomb. God rescued Joseph from the pit. God rescued Jesus from the tomb. Joseph was sold for the price of a slave. How much did Judas betray Jesus for? The price of a slave. Joseph forgave those who hated him. Jesus forgave those who hated him. Joseph revealed himself to his brothers Jesus reveals himself to his brothers. The point is this. 
the similarities between Joseph and Jesus are uncanny in senses. Jesus is a perfect example of forgiveness. But notice that when the brothers hated Joseph, here's the horrible news. At times, that's how we treated Jesus. Joseph, in Genesis 45, 5, says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. See, Joseph knew that God had it in control. Yes, the wicked brothers played a role in it, but God allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery. People didn't kill Jesus. We'll talk a lot about this as we go through the Gospel of John. People didn't kill Jesus because they overpowered him. People killed Jesus because God allowed it, because God sent Jesus to preserve life as he sent Joseph. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the point I want to make in this section as we, as we open it up more is we're far more similar to Joseph's brothers than we really are to Joseph. That's some bad news, no? That's not encouraging news. Well, it gets encouraging at the end, so don't leave quite yet. Joseph's brothers were not only bad, but the second point you have on there is they were blind. Joseph's brothers had come into his presence several times, and they had no idea who he was. Now, that's kind of to be expected, because Joseph was living in Egypt. He had an Egyptian wife. He had kids with an Egyptian wife. His dress would have been substantially different than the Joseph who lived with Jacob as a teenage kid wearing the flashy robe. He would have also been grown. He would have had different facial hair structure. He would not have looked like what his brothers would have expected, nor did they expect he was alive. Have you ever been in the presence of someone and you didn't recognize them? You see, I was for a long time. Before I believed in Jesus, I could live in God's creation and I could clearly know that there was no such thing as God and that Jesus certainly wasn't God's son. He was a myth. I lived every day at God's mercy, but I denied the fact that God existed. You realize we don't wake up because God has programmed us to go through the motions like a robot. We wake up at God's mercy. Societally, we have been indoctrinated in something called a naturalist view. It's a deistic view. We think of God, whether we like it or not, if we're not careful, as a, a wind-up-the-clock God. God winds it up, steps back, and sets in motion. How do I know we think of this? You ever ask the question, where was God when? Well, God doesn't go anywhere. Because the Bible is very clear. God is the creator, redeemer, and sustainer. If God removes his hand from his creation, for just a moment the creation ceases to exist. So we asked yesterday, uh, nine years ago, where was God on September 11th? God was there. God can't go anywhere. We talked about the good evil part a few weeks ago. But God is always right there. But we can live in his presence and not even recognize him for who he is. Because we create, as non-Christians, a false god. It's usually ourselves or something else. But Joseph's brothers were in front of Joseph for a long time, and Joseph revealed himself to them. Joseph said in four, chapter 45, verse 3, I am Joseph. Well, one day in my life, God said to me, I am God, you are not. Meet my son. Not audibly. But it was very clear that he did it. Have you ever stopped to think about what an amazing thing that is? How does God reveal... Why does God... Sorry, is the question. Why does God reveal himself to us? You realize Matthew, Matthew 11, 27. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things have been handed over to me, Jesus, by my Father, 
And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Guess what that means, folks? We can't know God unless God chooses to have Himself revealed to us. Do you ever think about that? So check this out. Imagine that you are one of Joseph's brothers, and you do all this bad stuff to Joseph, and you come before Joseph, and, and Joseph uh, has to reveal himself so you know who he is. And he's going to forgive him. Why would he reveal himself? Wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't you be furious? Have you ever stopped to think about it? If you don't do this, because you'll have a really miserable day. Actually, it's probably not a bad idea to do if you finish the project out. Think of all the things that, that you have done that have offended God severely over the course of your life. You might have to get a few books. And then ask yourself this. Being that I did all those things, why would God reveal himself to me lovingly? I mean, the fire and brimstone version might make a little more sense. Why would God reveal himself to us? It ties in with what happened with Judah. Repentance. We need to understand what repentance is. Judah comes before Joseph. And Judah says in 44, verse 16, God has found the guilt of your servants. All of a sudden he realizes, uh, yeah, we're bad brothers. I don't think Joseph's brothers lost a lot of sleep over the years that Joseph spent at Potiphar's house in the penitentiary and working with Pharaoh. They assumed he was dead. But I don't think they woke up for and going, oh, I can't believe what we've done to our baby brother. How could we? We must go find him. They were able to live a happy, jolly life. Hey, Simeon, what, Judah? Oh, it's such a great day. Joseph's not here. None of this dream nonsense. We can tend to sheep and no one's going to run and tell Dad that we're doing bad stuff. And Oh, we don't have to listen to him and watch him frolic and watch Dad love him more. Maybe he'll pay more attention to us now. It's actually not so bad that he's gone, is it? I think they live quite content that way. I think at times we live quite content in sin. It's not that bad. It's going okay. You know, we do a lot of this good stuff for God, just a couple little areas, it's okay. And you know how we, we live that way? We don't think about it. We push it off to the side, and, and we just ignore it. Well, one day Judah was repentant. And God, uh, jo- I can't, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph opened their eyes when they came repentantly and said, I am Joseph. Do you know when God opened my eyes? When I began to repent doesn't mean that I, I listed every sin and said, God, I did all this stuff. Do you forgive me? He says, okay, you got them all listed. I forgive you. No. But when I humbly began to realize that I was not God and that he was and desired to know him, that I knocked and I, I sought, then he revealed himself. You know what's so hard about repentance? It means admitting we're wrong. Here's a turning point where the bad news gets to be good news. You know why it's so hard to talk to people about Jesus and have them say, oh my gosh, Jesus really is God's son. Jesus really did die for my sins. Because what they really have to say is, I was completely wrong. I was a fool. Oh my gosh. Anybody here comfortable saying, I'm wrong? I was a fool? It's hard to do, isn't it? Now, we need to realize, though, that without the bad news, there's no good news. And here's the problem we have. When we don't understand the need for repentance, when we don't understand 
sin, when we don't understand that we rank a 1 on a scale of 1 to 10, what's so good about Jesus? I think sometimes we think, well, you know, God sent Jesus because I'm a good guy with a good amount of potential, and he wanted to reconcile me so he could use me because I have so many positive attributes. And yeah, I did some bad stuff, but I kind of, if I'm going to be honest with you, deserve Jesus to come. Not at all. There is nothing in our lives that deserved Jesus to come. The good news is good news when the bad news sets in. When we don't understand the bad news, the good news becomes kind of good news and we get a lukewarm compartmentalized faith. We kind of put Jesus in a box and we put ourselves in a bigger box and we interact a little bit when we're comfortable with Jesus, but we don't really need him all that much because we're more like sevens or eights as opposed to ones on a scale of one to ten. When sin is not fully understood, the good news becomes a kind of good news. And it's tough to focus on God. We all have that problem. But when the bad news is fully understood, when we become repentant dudes, when we understand what we deserve, think about this. When the brothers came to Joseph, what did Joseph have within his power to do? Kill him, incarcerate him, or expel him and let him starve to death. They were all completely within his power, and he would be completely just in doing that. Why did he forgive them? With Joseph, the answer is a little different than with Jesus, and we'll talk about that. But let this question sit a minute. Why did God choose to forgive us? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Why did God choose to send Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us for our sin? It's a really amazing concept when you think about it. It was not because he saw the potential in us. The potential wasn't there. It was not because we did good stuff in the past. Really, the best answer to why is simply wow. But the basis is love. There's no greater love than this, that one would give up his life. Jesus came and died for us while we were still yet sinners. Why did God send Jesus? When you stop and think about that, it's hard to wake up in the morning and not focus on God. One thing I've been noticing is similar to what Patty was saying. So I'm working through some things is with, with patience, for example. If I focus on the fact that God is with me at all times, that God entrusts me with things, and that God sent Jesus to die for me, in spite of things I have done in the past, have done in the, in the present, and will do in the future, it is very difficult for me to lose patience in a situation. But yet, if I don't think about God, if I can get focused on this world, if I can get focused on myself and ignore the reality of who I am in relation to God and what He's done for me, I can lose my patience in a hurry. And it's really easy to lose focus on God because that's what I've trained myself to do for a long, long time. But when I stay focused on God, it becomes a whole lot easier to live like He likes because we can depend and lean on Him more fully. One really good way to do that is to realize why would God come and die for people like us? Look at what Joseph did. He revealed himself to his brothers and he didn't say to them, I forgive you, go get some grain and go home. He forgave them and said, come move in with me. He restores them to a position of fam familial relation. He gives them the finest land to tend their flock. 
He provides for them food, clothing, and shelter. He didn't just forgive them, he provided for them. And now this is where it gets really crazy. God didn't just forgive us and say, you know what, fine, you can come into heaven. He forgives us and says, you know what, you're a child of my own. You are royalty. You have an inheritance in heaven from me, your daddy. And I will go ahead and prepare a home for you in heaven, and it will provide for you an abundance in this life, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want you to have life to the fullest. I want you to have a joyful, blessed life. Why, God, why? You'll never understand that fully, especially on this side of eternity. So for the wickedness that Joseph's brothers did to him, Joseph forgave them. It's a pretty amazing thing. For the wickedness that we've done before God, God forgave us and provides for us and welcomes us into his presence directly and allows us to spend eternity with him in heaven. Why? How do we become forgiving dudes? Well, it starts by understanding who we are and what it means that God has forgiven us. If you ever need deep theological insights, ask a small child. I asked a five-year-old yesterday, what does it mean to forgive? And his answer was, it means you're not looking to get even. I thought that was a pretty good uh, definition. In our lives, when someone wrongs us, sometimes we struggle with forgiving because we want to get even. Maybe not physically, but we'll think it out in our heads. Have you ever thought about this? We're called to forgive in the same light Christ forgives us. It's a different forgiveness, but we're called to forgive. Jesus' forgiveness was this. Imagine it like this. Just coming to my head, it could be a horrible thing. Imagine you walk up and you spit in someone's face and you walk away. And they keep following you and you keep turning around and spitting in their face. And they keep following you and you keep turning around and spitting in their face. And they say, why won't you leave me alone? I'm spitting in your face. And they say, because I love you. And I want to forgive you, and I'm going to follow you, no matter how long you spit in my face. I will follow you, and I will forgive you if you will simply just ask and take the forgiveness. And I will never remember a single spit you put in my face. And I will embrace you and love you and provide for you and protect you and guide you the rest of your life. Is that ridiculous? In our lives, someone wrongs us. We think forgiveness means when they come to us and say, I'm sorry, just the right way we'll say, all right, and we've forgiven them. That's probably the best any of us could do on our own. But when you think about the fact that you have walked along and spat in God's face repetitively, we all have, not literally, but figuratively, and God is always forgiving us and pursuing us, it makes it seem kind of silly that if someone bumps into us on a train, we wish them to go to hell, doesn't it? Or perhaps something even more severe, like someone lies and causes us to be incarcerated, or makes us lose a job, or removes us from our family relational circles because of lies they have told about us. How do we forgive someone? Well, we proceed to number two, understand God's sovereignty. You see, Joseph understood he was sent to Egypt to preserve life. His forgiveness came because he understood God's sovereignty. Jesus came down from heaven, perfection. He was born of a... He looked just... Well, I'm going to assume Jesus was cuter than my own kid, okay? But he looked like that, and Mary had to hold him. He was fragile and floppy and needed to be fed. And he, he 
probably wore diapers, I'm assuming of some type, and then he grew up in this fallen world. This is coming down from heaven. And people ridiculed him and mocked him and hated him. And they lied about him and they had this false trial series. They put him up on a cross and they nailed him and he died. Why? He could have stopped it at any moment. You realize that? Sometimes we have these, uh, these rather effeminate pictures of Jesus in a robe with a smile and it looks like, you know, anyone could knock him down and they blew on him. Jesus didn't need to be built like a, a steroid-using uh, bodybuilder. The man had strength. Superhuman strength, but he was still fully human. At any moment, he could have called down, as he said, his legion of angels and stopped this, but he didn't because he knew what the Father's perfect will was. He understood the sovereignty of God. Yes, it helps when you're fully God, but he was also fully man. And he didn't stop it because he knew that it's what God wanted, that God either was going to allow it or cause it to preserve life. When we realize that those wicked, nasty people that do things to us, and bad, horrible things happen to us at times, that it happens either because God caused it or allowed it. It's not happening outside of God's will. Where was God when my family member did such? God was right there. The better question is, what is is God's perfect purpose in this situation? For me, it's to learn forgiveness. It's to focus on who God is and what he did for me and put things in perspective. The offenses that happen against me are nothing compared to the offenses that I have cast upon or before God that he's forgiven me for. And here's where it ties in. Starts by understanding who we are and what it means that God has forgiven us. It proceeds by understanding God's sovereignty. And it culminates in understanding the far-reaching effects of forgiveness. I'm glad I wasn't Joseph. Because if I had brothers like Joseph had brothers, and they came in one day, I would have said something like, Hey, I'm Joseph. And remember that dream I told you about? That irked you all so bad? You just bowed down before me. I was right. You were wrong. And now you're going to be hungry because I'm not going to feed you, so go back to your home and figure out a way to care for yourself. See, that's a sinful, good human response. What would have happened if Joseph did that? Jacob and his family would have starved to death. And the rest of this book, from chapter 43 on, we could have cast it out the window. Do you think Joseph said, now wait, perhaps Messiah will come from our line some way in the future, and all the prophets will speak of it, and there will be a New Testament written, a new covenant through the blood of Christ, and then there will be people like Paul and James and Peter and John, and they will write these great words of God's perfect, full, complete revelation for thousands of years and billions of people to hear to come to to faith in Christ and be reconciled to God. Do you think that's what was going through Joseph's mind when his brothers showed up before him? Do you think it blew his mind how he played a role, how he was a cog in the, in the wheel of God's plan? So let me ask you this question. What does our forgiveness do? When we forgive that next person who offends us, or the series of people who have offended us severely over the years, what does it do? Well, I'll tell you what it does. It does the same thing that Joseph's forgiveness did. It does the same thing that Jesus' forgiveness does. It preserves life. Genesis 45.5 says that God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you know what John 10.10 says? You will in a few weeks. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I, Jesus, I came that they may have what? 
and have it abundantly. Forgiveness leads to life when it comes to God. Forgiveness leads to life when it comes to us because our forgiveness allows God's light to shine through us for the world to see. You see, the reality of the situation is if Joseph didn't forgive his brothers, we don't know how it would have played out, but you can't thwart God's plan. The Messiah was going to come. But because Joseph chose to be obedient to God, because Joseph chose to forgive, God did amazing things through that work. Thank God that Jesus chose to come down and chose to die for us and chose to forgive us. You and I have a choice to make. The culminating event in Joseph's life was forgiveness. And here's the bad news and the good news. The bad news is we're all ones on a scale of 1 to 10 apart from Christ. You will never be able to forgive a person properly apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But, here's the great but, we all leave that 1 on a scale of 1 to 10. You see, the balance is it's difficult to understand how bad we are and how loved we are all at once. Now, by being bad, I am not saying that we're worthless. We cannot comprehend our worth before God. It is incomprehensible. Do you understand that? We're bad dudes, but we're love dudes. Why did Jesus die for us? Because we have incredible worth. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We are all pretty darn special. So special, in fact, that God is infatuated with us. Well, I don't mean that in a messed up psychological way. God is infatuated with every aspect of our lives. He adores us. He cannot stop watching us and caring for us and being with us because he loves us so much. Does that kind of make you wonder why? What's so great about me? Oh, when you understand God, you can't have low self-esteem. Because people may try to give you low self-esteem. When the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of the universe is infatuated and in love with you, how could you have low self-esteem? We're bad dudes, or dudettes, but we're incredibly loved dudes and dudettes as well. When we understand that bad news, good news balance, we start to understand a little more fully who Jesus is, and we start to realize why it is ridiculous to try to compartmentalize our faith, why it is impossible to not be a cheerful follower of Christ, why we would want to sin becomes a big question in our mind that we struggle with, and little by little we trust God more and more. Why does it take me so long to be able to focus on the fact that God is with us at all times? That, for example, everything, everything in our lives is given to us and entrusted to us by God with a perfect purpose. And He's guiding us and providing for us and caring for us perfectly. Why is it so hard to lose focus? Because as a pastor... Intellectually, I grasp the bad news and the good news. As a person, at times I struggle getting that down into my heart and fully living like what I know to be true. I'm going to assume that's true for most people. As it slowly moves through the blockage of sin in my life from the head to the heart. Now, it's got to be in the head. You can't just live with the heart. But as it goes from the head to the heart, it begins to be more of a not, God, what are you up to? Why didn't you do this? It becomes more of a, all right, God, I know that you know what you're up to. I know that you know why you did this. I'm willing to trust you and see. And it's a heck of a lot better way to live than trying to be in control of everything. So how do you forgive? Understand how bad you are, but don't forget how loved you are. 
understand God's sovereignty and understand the far-reaching effects about forgiveness. It's not just about us. It's not just about us and the person who forgave us. It's about God's love for the world and how he can let that shine through us in part through our forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what uh, was ever from you today would be remembered and what was ever uh, gibberish out of my lips uh, would be forgotten. God, I am just utterly amazed, moment by moment, day after day, by how much you love us. I am amazed by how your plan comes together perfectly, most often uh, in spite of my attempts to try to help you out there. God, I just I praise you and thank you for the fact that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. I pray that over the coming weeks as we, we go through the, the Gospel of John, that you would reveal who Jesus truly was more fully to us, that you would continue to reveal who you are more fully to us, what it means that you are a perfect, just, and holy God. I thank you for the example of Joseph. I thank you for the fact that he was able to forgive his brothers despite what they did. I thank you for the fact that his brothers were repentant. I thank you for the fact that you restored them to a proper family or to a proper familial relationship. But God, most of all, I thank you for the fact that you orchestrated it all perfectly, that you sustained your chosen people, that you allowed them to continue on to send Jesus at just the right time to die for us. God, I pray this day and this week in particular you begin a great work in us where our focus became more perfect, where our perspective became more like yours, where you were so right in front of our face at every moment of our lives. And the joy we felt because of that is so immense that we would live more fully for you and for your glory. Thank you, God, for allowing us to enter into your presence directly. Thank you for the fact that you listen to every word we say. Thank you, God, for loving us. We cannot fully understand why you do, but we thank you for the fact that you do. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.